Hope you're doing well. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. Um, hope you're having a good Father's Day. Hope you get awesome presents and everything that goes along with it. Um, we're continuing here in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be picking it up at verse 21. We've been going through Matthew for a while now. And so uh, we're picking it up in verse 21. <clears throat> and we're kind of finding ourselves in the middle of a series. This series, you know, as we're going through Matthew, we're kind of looking at pieces and parts. And each little series has a title. And what's going on in this particular uh, series that we're in, which started back in 14, and is going to go through kind of the midpoint of 16. So we're kind of in the middle of it um, towards the end. Is called Identity Revealed, which is Jesus has been slowly doing his ministry. And as he's getting to this particular point now in his ministry, he's revealing himself um, as the Son of God. He's revealing his identity in specific ways. And so some of the ways that we've seen him reveal it is by teacher. And then today we're going to see like healer and supplier, which is one that we've seen already. But again, it's a little bit different. We're going to um, show and see those similarities and also see why they're a little bit different as well. So that's where we are today, starting at Matthew fifteen twenty one through 39. So you can go ahead and flip there and I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll be there when we start. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've told us just how amazing it is and that it leads us to righteousness. It trains us to walk more closely with you. It convicts us of our sin. It it does so many things. And so we're just so grateful for it this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to stand here and, and teach it. I thank you that your word is true and your word has power despite my own deficiencies and despite who I am because of its power. Lord, you use it um, in sinful men like me. I pray that this morning, this sermon would actually land on us and be more powerful than what it actually is. I know that in my own words, um, there's nothing but whenever I speak, and it's because it's with your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, those two things, your word and your spirit come, that it has power. And so I pray that it would be, that would be the case this morning, that you would come mightily and speak to us. In the text, Lord, we're going to see a woman that just comes to Christ so desperate because of her situation. And for us, Lord, I pray that you would help us see that that's really us and that life might be okay for us and our circumstances. And it doesn't seem like her, but the truth is that we're just as desperate as she is and that we would come with that same desperation that she has. um, Feasting on and seeing that the gospel is the only hope we have. And so we pray that you would do that amazing work in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So. We're looking at 21 through 39, and these are three really simple, simple, simple stories. There is really nothing um, new or vastly profound that's not something that you don't probably already know. And so if that's being the case, um, and there's some repeat kind of stories and, and the scenarios are somewhat the same, since it's all basically... Some new kind of new stories, but same kind of sounding stories and all these kinds of things. We're desperately needing the Holy Spirit to come because nothing new is going to necessarily be given to you today. You and I are desperate for the Holy Spirit to come and take these particular texts, which we haven't looked at yet, and do amazing works in our heart, getting us um, motivated and encouraged to really trust the gospel, really live out what it should happen in our life. And so I'm, I'm praying that since these things aren't really anything that you probably don't know, that you're begging the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart this morning. So we're looking at, as, as I said, kind of three basic repeat information episodes, although there is difference. And so we can ask the question, you know, Matthew, why is it that you're kind of telling us essentially the same point? Why are you doing this? Well, I'm going to tell you that there's a little bit of a difference um, in what we're seeing and hearing here. Uh, these are, as before in Matthew 14, Jesus revealing himself as the healer, as the supplier. We're even going to see where Jesus heeds Uh, feeds 4,000 people, just like in chapter 14, where he fed 5,000 people. So there's a little bit of a a same kind of thing going on. However, um, in in 1521, I want you to see this. uh, Most of us aren't familiar with ancient uh, land, and so we don't know what all this might mean. So I want want you to see this. And it says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, 
Jesus spent most of his ministry, actually almost all of his ministry, uh, that he was that three-year period in this Jewish area that he was doing his work in. With one exception, right now, he goes out kind of northwest, about 50, 25 to 50 miles of walking distance to this area called Tyre and Sidon. That is outside of the Jewish area into a Gentile place. So while these stories are similar... Um, and what we've seen before as he's doing his ministry, because he's out in a, in a Gentile area, they, they take on a whole new uh, context. They take on a whole new meaning. So when we hear stories, I'm sorry, not stories, but verses in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is talking about this mystery that's being made known to him. He says, um, it's not been made known to previous generations, but now it's been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets. And he says this in Ephesians 3, verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles now are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there's this new thing that's happening. Paul's writing Ephesians 3 that not just Israel's being saved, but Gentiles. We see that also in Acts 10, where Peter's kind of taking this huge nap. He goes into a trance. Something comes out and God tells him this is clean. And basically he goes over to a Gentile area. And Cornelius and his whole family, all Gentiles, get saved. And so um, guess who started this idea that Paul and Peter are talking about? Guess who started this idea about Gentiles coming into to faith? Je- Jesus. Usually the answer is Jesus in those kinds of scenarios. So here is Jesus. And so we're going to see. And y'all, we must, we got to start some Sunday school here or something. I'm just kidding. But um, anyway, the answer is Jesus. It's always the Sunday school answer. And that's all that idea of the Gentiles being invited into the family of God. If we're looking for, when did all that begin? Where's the foreshadowing and the beginning parts of that happening? This is it right here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. This is where Jesus starts this whole new idea. So the disciples are just being kind of amazed here. Now Gentiles are being invited into the family of God. So here's the deal. Although these are kind of the same sounding stories as we've seen in chapter 14, it's a whole new context because Jesus has decided to go up to Tyre and Sidon. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Look at verse 20. If we can remember last week what was going on, we had the, the Pharisees and the scribes. They, oh, crazy things are going on over there. We need to, we need to deploy our best uh, Pharisees and scribes get over there. People are getting saved. You know, people are being healed. All this sounds like it might be from God, but those disciples just don't wash their hands when they eat. So we can't, this can't be from God. These amazing stories where man's walking on the water claiming to be God. So we got to send out our best, the scribes and Pharisees, because they don't wash their hands. And so we, we finish it out with verse 20, where Jesus is basically talking about the importance of the heart as opposed to these ideas of hand washings. And he says, these are what defile a person there in verse, uh, the big list in 19. Um, but to eat with unwashed hands does not file anyone. So he's talking about the idea that these Pharisees say you're unclean if you don't wash your hands when you eat. And so if that's the case, well, certainly the scribes and Pharisees would say going into Gentile territory and rubbing shoulders with them. That really makes you unclean. So Jesus in 21 says field trip time, disciples, we're going up to Tyre and Sidon. I'm going to help everybody unsee, see what it means about unclean. And now I'm doing a whole new thing, inviting these unclean, pagan, nasty dog Gentiles into the family of God, blowing their minds. So remember, Matthew is writing this to this book, you know, 30 years after Jesus died. Matthew's writing this book to people who are Jewish. Now, just imagine as the Jewish people are reading this, they're just <laughs> they get to verse 21 they're, and 15. They're kind of freaking out. They're like, wait a second. Jesus is going up to Tyre and Sidon. OK, that's the Gentile area. So Matthew is trying to incite their interest, wanting them to see, oh, this is this is interesting. This this man's doing something different, although he's going to do the same things. Almost uh, there's something different. And then you'll see there in 22, uh, Matthew's going to use a term and it just kind of jumps out at us Uh because well, it jumps out to the to the Jewish writers, and I want to help us see how it jumps out. And behold, there it says a Canaanite woman from that region. So this word Canaanite is the only time in the New Testament where this word is used. Now, this is a reference to ancient enemies of Israel, where whenever they went to the promised land, those are the people that they had destroyed in order to take the promised land. So this term, this term Canaanite, this this enemy if you will, of Israel, this woman, Jesus is going to go out and there's this Canaanite enemy of, of the people of Israel comes up to Jesus. Now, this is certainly enhancing or heightening the interest of the Jewish readers are like, oh, wait a second, Tyre Sidon, Canaanite. Oh, th- this is crazy. You know, so they're getting they're getting 
very interested. And as I said, this is for us the absolute beginning and the foreshadowing now of the Gentiles now being included into the family of God. All barriers are now being broken down. So this is, this is huge stuff going on in Matthew 15. And see what happens. It says, Behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region, came out and was crying. Have mercy on me. Interestingly, look at the terms. A Gentile woman saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Son of David. This is just the maximum amount of interest now for these Jewish writers. They understood that David was the king. And this Gentile woman, this Canaanite, is calling Jesus the son of David. If there could not be any more maximum interest involved, I don't know what it would be. So we see here, that, and we see that she's also crying out. She's literally crying out. As a matter of fact, she's crying out so loud. We're going to see in just a little bit in 23 um, that it's so long and so terrible. It's not quiet at all. It's not short. It's so long and so terrible that the disciples have just kind of had enough. And they come up to Jesus and like, please, Jesus, please. I mean, she's just going on. Do something. Would you just send her away? Please, Jesus. And so that's that's kind of what they say there in 23. He said, um, and disciples came begging him, saying, Lord, send her away, for she's crying out. So what we're going to see here in these three stories, and I'm going to use this word big every time, and it's kind of a, a reoccurring theme, but there's three big Gentile stories that we're going to look at in, 15, in uh, chapter 15, 21 through 39. The first big Gentile story, which we're going to see here, is this woman, the big faith of the Gentile woman. This is the big faith of the Gentile woman. We see here, she comes... Crying out, imploring Jesus to have mercy on her. And it says that she goes on and on for so long that the disciples eventually had to come to Jesus and just beg him, Lord, make it stop, make it stop. And so what we see here, if that's the case, if it went on for so long that the disciples have just had enough that they go to Jesus and they say, please make it stop. What we can take from that is there was an absolute desperation in the heart of this woman, a desperation for Jesus to come and move in her life. So the first thing I want you to see is out of the big faith of the Gentile woman. And always, as we see these things, when we see a big faith of someone, we need to apply it to ourselves and say, all right, this is how she came. This, she exercised big faith. Jesus tells her that's good. These are the things that all Christians should have. I'm a Christian. I want to do that. And so we see with her, she comes desperate, which means we should come to Christ desperate. Her situation was dire. It was dire. Her child was oppressed by a demon, and she knows that there's nothing else I can do. I'm going to go to Christ. There was a place that was kind of close, but she chooses not to go there because, well, there was a history of, of oppression, uh, people who are oppressed being healed. She chooses not. She, she hears that Jesus, this man Jesus in town, I'm going to the only place I can go, the one who can do it. I'm going to him because she's absolutely desperate, which means we need to realize this is the same thing with us. Sometimes we don't feel that desperation because life seems so easy. We're going through and there's not a whole lot of trouble that's going in our heart. But the truth is that we're no different this, than this woman. We are daily desperate for the presence of Christ to come and move in our life to remind us of the gospel, to help us be courageous, to give us the ability to speak to our spouse in a Christ-like way, to raise our... Ch- we are continually desperate for the presence of Christ in our life, just like this woman. But sometimes we don't see it because life seems so easy. But she comes absolutely desperate to her, desperate to Christ. And notice she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She has the correct object of faith. She doesn't have faith in faith. She doesn't have faith in religion. She doesn't have faith in herself. The correct and the only object is Jesus. You're my only help. You're the only one that can do this. So she has the second thing is the object of her faith is Christ. Now, she uses this word son of David. And so the Jewish reader hears this and they're thinking this is this is unbelievable. A Gentile on Gentile turf calling out to the son of David to have mercy. They, They barely can get past this as they're reading. Now, I want you to notice also she comes desperate. Whenever she comes desperate, the object of her faith is Christ, which is the only person that we can have as our object of faith. And then she appeals to him. She says to him there in verse 22, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Her appeal is based solely on his mercy. It's based solely on his mercy. She knows how to appeal. Now, we're going to see some pretty amazing things happen here in just a second in 
this transaction. Um, but we need to realize, first she comes desperate. She goes only to Christ. That's the only person. And she is appealing him based on mercy. Now it gets a little crazy. Notice this. But uh, she says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And we can all understand if our children are any, um, by any faith or fate or, or, or faith or shat- what am I trying to say? If our children are messed up, we're going to Jesus. Like, Jesus, I got nothing else. When my kids are messed up, I'll, we immediately start um, praying or whatever. So one day I learned to talk. 23. And, but notice what happens in 23. This is, this is striking that Jesus responds this way. This is not what we think would happen at all. She's yelling and it's so loud, crying out, have mercy on me, so today. And it's continual and it's loud. But he did not answer her a word. I mean, <laughs> this is crazy. The son of God, Jesus, literally just stonewalls her and ignores her. She's just going, going, going. And he's just ignoring her. That's just pretty striking. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Is he just all of a sudden become the rudest person in the world? No, there's, there's something going on. I was reading some commentaries and they had all these different things. I think that one of them is that <clears throat> he's testing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain to you why I think that what's going on is that Jesus is, is performing a test on her in just a second. But he's just ignoring her, which we look at and we're like, this is crazy. But I think he's testing her. And so this ignoring of her is for a purpose. It's not just, you know, Jesus has all of a sudden become rude. And it says, and the disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. And so he answered the disciples, not the crying, not the screaming of her. He answered the disciples. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay. This is even getting more interesting. All right. Field trip time. We're going to Gentile land. What happens? Obviously, this would we would think this would happen. Gentiles hear about Jesus and they start asking him for help. And so you would think you started the field trip. We're supposed to be here in Gentile land. Here's crazy yelling lady yelling for something. Aren't you supposed to do something? And he just stonewalls her. And the disciples are like, are you going to do something? He's like, I've come to uh, help the, the house of Israel. Well, then what are we doing in Tyre and Sidon? <laughs> no, that's the first thought we all have. What are we doing in Tyre and Sidon then? Why do we have to do this 50-mile walking field trip, Jesus? So um, he says this basically to them. Now, if we remember this verse right here where it says, I came only to help the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the exact same language of chapter 10, verse 6. Whenever he sends the disciples out on their first little mission trip to the house of Israel, he says, go only to the house of Israel. Which is, this is just keeping for us the pattern. Jesus is trying to test her, but also teach. And what he's wanting to see is there's a pattern, a sequence of which God has always chosen to save. First to Israel, then to the Gentiles. That's, that's his pattern. Why? That's his pattern. Because that's what he wants. And <laughs> that's all we got. So he says, he answers to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But notice this. Notice she keeps on persevering. She keeps being persistent in her asks to the Lord. And 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So we can see that there's a continual perseverance of, the, of this girl to, towards him. Of which she is to be, you know, esteemed, not, you know, not worshiped, but esteemed. This is, this is pretty amazing persistence. And then Jesus even answers even more, if you will, sharper. And again, this is just a test. I think this is just a test for her. And I'm going to show you why he calls her a dog. And I'm going to say why I'm going to show you why I think this is a test because of this dog term. Um, and it says, it's not right to take the children's bread. Now he's speaking of Israel and he's saying, I've come just for the house of Israel. And so the, the words and the salvation and the things that I proclaim to them, that's the children's bread. That's Israel's message. And he says, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right for me to take what's right for Israel and just throw it to you dog Gentiles. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> this is, who is this guy and where did you take Jesus? That's kind of what we're all thinking. Again, I think this is just a test. He's wanting to test this woman, but also teach everybody the sequence that God says first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. But this is interesting right here. And this is why I say that this is just a test because of this term dog. Now, how is that a test? For? That doesn't seem very testing. Here's what's going on in Greek. There are two terms for the for the word dog. There's this street dog, which is the rabid, gross, nasty, you know, crazy dog that just is all crazy, you know, Cujo, if you will. That's not the actual Greek word, but that's, there's that dog. And then there's another term. And this other term dog is for like a pet, you know, 
this is my pet and I love my little dog and he's fun. He jumps around. And so that's that's the second. Now, Jesus could have used that first term, but he doesn't. He doesn't use that first term. He uses the second. So as he uses this second term, he's been teaching the sequence of, of salvation first to Jews and then to the Gentiles. But as he looks at this lady and some commentators, I read one commentator says, when we read something on the text of a page, we don't know. But um, whenever we, it's said in person, we can we can understand the way they're saying it. And he thinks this commentator said and he said this with a little smile on his face where he looks at her and he says, it's not right to take the children and throw it to the dogs like alluding to something. So I think, and this, and I think this is true. He's testing her and he's saying to her, um, there's two things. Number one, I'm still calling you a dog. So yeah, he does still call her a dog, but he calls her that gentler dog. But what he's trying to do is to show that you're a Gentile. He's wanting everybody to see that this lady is a Gentile. And I'm trying to emphasize for everyone here, especially those disciples that are on my field trip, the, the Gentile status. But as I'm doing that, I don't use the rabid Cujo dog term. I'm going to use this pet term and I'm going to help them see that this is... Um, Not someone who's just gross and nasty pagan, but someone that's cared for by God. So he uses that term. So he's alluding to, by using that term, the grace that she's about to be shown. He's alluding to, he's about to show her this amazing grace. And, if you will, rewarding her perseverance. He's rewarding her perseverance. So the fourth, I think I'm on 1A, 4B, or whatever I am. 1D, that's where I am. Um, I should have used the letters in my notes. Um, Her faith perseveres. Her faith is persevering. So for all of us, whenever we realize just how desperate we are, sometimes whenever we realize we're desperate, we go to the Lord and we're saying, Jesus, you're the object of my faith. I have nowhere else I can go. My appeal is based solely on your mercy. Please do something. He didn't do anything. Well, that's okay. I I can't do anymore. Like, but notice this woman continues and she doesn't get the answer she wants. And she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And then she's even going to appeal more in 27. I shouldn't I shouldn't throw the children's bread to the dogs. And she even says this. She said, yes, Lord. So she's not at all trying to say what you just said is wrong. She's completely acknowledging you're right. What you have is for Israel. And I'm not Israel. I'm a Gentile. I'm, I'm, I'm a dog Gentile. D.A. Carson, whenever he says, yes, Lord, yet even this this yet even phrase where she is not like all of us, we would say, well, that's not fair. You're not being fair. I'm supposed to be treated like everybody else. And that's not how God works. God does not treat everybody the same. He just doesn't. If you just look at the the whole of the Old Testament, there's just an easy, broad, cursory reading of the Old Testament. It's just obvious that Abraham's just kind of walking in because you are going to be the father of my children. Not these other guys, but you. And then Abraham believed and he counted his, his faith as righteousness. And then he says, that's your promised land. Go kill all those people. That seems like he's showing a lot of favor to Israelites, but not so much a whole lot of favor to the Canaanites. They're just going to be destroyed and kind of... And we, this, this, is, this is the way God works. And so this girl, this lady, is completely aware that God does that. And so she doesn't appeal to him and say, you're not being fair. This, yes, Lord, yet even. This is what D.A. Carson says. This is, I love this. Her answer is masterly. Learned that masterly was a word this week. Her answer is masterly. She has immense wisdom and faith. She does not argue that her needs make her an exception. Don't we all think that? No, my needs are different, God. I'm the exception here. You really need to work right now. He rewards her perseverance. And all of us need to have this, this perseverance. And he says, she realized that her needs do not make her an exception. Or that she has a right to Israel's covenant mercies. Or that the mysterious ways of divine election and justice are unfair. She's not saying, your divine election to choose Israel first over Gentiles. I'm not arguing with any of that. All that's true. And then, he, and then she says, she simply asks for help hopeful for a crumb from the kindness of the lord i'm 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 completely aware of all that lord but still by your mercy just give me crumbs look what she says to him yes lord even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table and jesus said oh woman great faith she says you can call me a dog but you know what sometimes crumbs fall on the ground and those crumbs of mercy are given to those dogs i'm a dog just throw me then the crumbs of mercy i just beseech you knowing that i'm not israel and that you would show me your your crumbs of mercy and i think that the, what's 
so key for us to realize as we're looking at this is that every single one of us are beggars just like this woman. And we should find ourselves satisfied with the crumbs that we get of mercy that are given to us from the kindness of God. But here's here's the thing. When God even just gives you crumbs of divine mercy, they're God's mercy. (laughs) They're huge because they come from him. And we should realize just what beggars we are and that when he does that, just how amazing that is. And so she realizes that she can persist and be perseverant and that he is going to he is going to answer. And he says to her in verse 28, then Jesus answered her test is over. Finally, everybody's on the same page now. Everybody sees. And so now it's time to reward this perseverance. And he says to her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Jesus desires faith. Jesus desires faith. He loves to see faith. He loves to see as here, great faith. This is the big, um, what did I title this? The big faith of the Gentile woman. So this is what Jesus is seeing, this great faith. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, Matthew only calls two peoples. He records only two times where uh, Jesus calls people's faith great. Matthew 8 with the centurion, a Gentile. And now Matthew 15, the great faith of this woman. Both great faiths and Matthew written to Jews are talking about Gentile people. That's that's pretty controversial. And so I want you to note this right here. Faith. And this is just she has complete faith, just seeking crumbs of mercy. Faith that is simply seeking mercy from the Lord is honored by God. And this is how we should be. Lord, show me mercy. I am I am just as desperate as she is. And I need for you to come and move. So with great emotion, great power, Jesus speaks and he brings about healer and says, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly or at that very hour she was healed. And so Jesus answers her perseverance. So that's the first um, big Gentile story It's this big faith of the Gentile woman. Now we're going to go to the second one. And this is entitled the big Gentile healing service. So Jesus has decided that just let's have a big healing service. Everybody's going to come out and we're just going to we're going to do the healing service. Um, Now, this is not the first healing service Jesus does. He's had three others. And this is his fourth um, big Gentile or big healing service, I should say. It's the first one that's Gentile. Matthew 4, he does a big healing service. Verses 23 following. Matthew 8 and 16 following. Matthew 8, 16 following. Matthew 14, 34 and following. And now his fourth big healing service, Matthew 15, 29. And this is how it goes. It says, Jesus went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee um, kind of... Here's Tyre, here's Sidon. You can just kind of walk up and you can walk up the Sea of Galilee on the way. And it says he's walking beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And here it is in verse 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them. Now, remember, we talked about this as we're going through these ideas of being healed as we've been going through the book of Matthew. The reason why Jesus heals people physically And so that when we look at that and we say, this is amazing, this person has been healed physically. That is an illustration of what's happened to us spiritually. Whenever we see someone being healed physically, we're supposed to look at that and say, that's exactly, I was dead and now I've been made alive. This is exactly what's happened to me. I've been healed spiritually. So the way that that person reacts to the physical healing they have had is the way that I should react to the spiritual healing that I've had. It changes their life and they go out with worship and telling people that's how I'm supposed to happen when I've been saved spiritually. I should go out with great worship and proclaim to people the spiritual healing I've I've had. And this is what happened in here in verse 29. Now, sometimes when we, we read stories like this, um, and they're kind of these big stories. And it just said, and this is happened to a whole lot of people. It doesn't hit us the way it should. And so what I want to do is, and, but sometimes whenever we just hear that individual story, that actually has more impact than me just saying, oh, tons of people got healed. And you're like, okay. But if I tell you the one story, this, this one guy though, when he came, we're all kind of amazed by that. So Mark and his graciousness, as he's recording this, narrows in on one story for. So if you'll flip over with me, to Mark chapter 7, we're going to see this one story where Jesus heals someone at the big Gentile healing service. We're going to see one of those particular people that is healed. You'll notice we're going to be at 31, but you'll notice at Mark seven twenty four, that's the uh, Canaanite woman. He calls her a Syrophoenician. 
And you'll also notice at 8, verse 1, that's the feeding of the 4,000, and which is what we're going to see in just a minute. So this is the big Gentile healing service that's going on there in verse 31. 731, it says, Then Jesus returned to the Tyre of Sidon and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis just means ten cities, Decaten, Polis city, ten cities. And they brought him to... And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. They begged him. So we can already see even here more desperation. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, look at this, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now imagine, you can't hear or talk. And now for the very first time, you have children. And for the very first time, the screaming that they, that they have or the words that they speak to you, Happy Father's Day, are now actually coming into your ears. You're enjoying creation. You're enjoying your family. You're having, you've never been able to communicate to them. And now you've been given the ability to hear your own family. You've been able to hear and enjoy the creation of God and to be able to speak back to people that you love. This is a huge gift for this man. This isn't some small thing. Now, what happens? He charged them not to tell it. They, they seem to disobey that, but let's just look at what they did. More zealously, they proclaimed it. Okay. Physical healings are teaching points for our spiritual healings. So if they would be willing for this physical healing they have to go more zealously and proclaim to everybody for this little short 50-year healing that we receive, Whatever, however age they are, it's only going to last till they die. That's it. That's as long as that physical healing lasts. Once they're dead, that healing doesn't really mean anything after that. But if that's the case, they would all the more zealously go and proclaim it. How much more for us who have not just been healed for something that's short and temporary, like 40 or 50 years, like a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. How much more should we then go zealously proclaim what has happened to us? Our ears have been opened. Our mouth has been freed to go with boldness now and tell people about the amazing spiritual healing that we've received. So that's the narrowed down story that we're seeing here. That's going on. So this big Gentile healing service, it says great crowds came. This is not profound at all. Not profound at all. But notice the first thing is they simply came to him. They didn't run around and try to do other things. They simply said, I can't do it. I can't be healed on my own. I need you, Jesus. And they came and it says that they literally, when they came to him, they brought them to his feet. They laid him at his feet. They put him at his feet. And this at the feet part is signifying that he's God. He's the one that can do it. Putting at his feet is saying, you're the one that's powerful. I'm not. And it's signifying my absolute desperation for you to do something. I'm here and I'm even going to lay at your feet showing you that I am desperate for you to do something. And then it says, they put him at his feet. And then verse 31, we, we narrow down on one story. And it says, so that the crowd, well, he says that he, he healed them all so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking. The crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. They were absolutely just astounded at this. The big Gentile healing service, one after another, being healed. One after another coming. And notice what it says. Matthew, I love the way Matthew writes. They glorified, look what he said. It doesn't say God. They glorified the God of Israel. These Gentile readers are reading that saying, wait a second. Gentile dogs are worshiping our God for what he's done in their life. That's pretty amazing. So the two things I want you to see here, is, or the three things, is they simply came. They came signifying their desperation as power. And the third one is when we understand our healing that we've received, we should worship and glorify God. Just like them, they were made well, and they went out proclaiming it zealously what had happened to them and worshiping and glorifying the God of Israel. The exact same thing that we should be doing. Now, the blessings for the Gentiles being included into the family of God is really beginning to dawn. One particular woman's one thing. Now you get the big Gentile healing service. That's another. 
and which moves us into the big Gentile meal. Um, and when you read this, <laughs> Jesus feeding 4,000, you're, you're kind of thinking, well, this is, you know, kind of anticlimactic. You know, he, it's only 4,000, not 5,000. He's even got more stuff. He's got seven loaves and three fish. And last time it was only five and two. It seems like the other one was a little bit more impressive than this one. <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case at all. Because remember, this is a brand new thing. Jesus is feeding 4,000 Gentiles. So this is a huge thing that's going on. So the big Gentile meal is going on here. And it says in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd. If you remember in 936, this is the exact same language used in 936 where he said he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus's compassion being highlighted for us when he's looking here at Gentiles and saying, I have compassion for them. Jesus has moved by it. And the first thing I want you to see out of the big Gentile meal is that it's the compassion of Jesus that leads him to save. Here he is feeding them, but it's the compassion of Jesus that leads him to save us. He is able to empathize with us. And I want you to notice when he says this, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. They've been with him in this big Gentile healing service for three days, which means, you know, some of them probably hadn't eaten for three days. Some of them hadn't eaten for two days. Some of them hadn't eaten for one. But now they're basically all out of food. Some have fasted for a day. Some have fasted for two. Some fasted for three. Because they're so desperate just to be with Jesus. I'm willing to forego food so that I can be here with him. And he says, I'm having compassion because they've been here without food. And look at this. I am unwilling to send them away hungry. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. Now... I want to just highlight this phrase for a second as we're looking at the compassion of Jesus and lift this idea where Jesus says, I'm unwilling to send him away. And I'm hoping that it's going to bless someone here because perhaps for someone this morning, you're a believer in Jesus and you have felt estranged from Jesus. You're a believer and you, you, you trust in faith with him, but there's been a time where You've just walked away. Jesus is saying, I'm unwilling to send you away. The reason why I say that so strongly is because if you're in Christ, it means from eternity past, he has chosen you to be his child and he has declared you completely righteous. And he has said that there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus and your feelings of estrangement, that sin that might be something that have caused that. He's saying that particular sin right there, I've already died for and I am unwilling to send you away. You need to know that you can come right now, that you are not separated from him and he is unwilling to send you away. He's just saying, come right now, come back. That is always the case for God in your life. If you're in Christ, he is unwilling to send you away because he has chosen for chosen you from eternity to past. And he has died for every single one of your sins. Even the ones you feel right now might be the, the catalyst or the, the cause of that estrangement or that separation you feel, that's simply not true. The truth is, he's unwilling to send you away. All that come to me, I will never drive away. That's what he says in John. Now, this is really interesting for us. We're going to get to some, <laughs> I think, crazy stuff here. And it says, I'm unwilling to send them away, lest they faint on the way. Now, Jesus isn't just kind of being, you know, we, I'm going to faint, I'm so hungry. This is literally probably what's going to happen. They haven't eaten for two or three days. They have to walk back to their houses. They're not going to get in their air conditioning cars and hit the drive through on the way home or hit the Waffle House at, you know, 2 a.m. They're going to faint on the way home. And Jesus is unwilling for that to happen. And so we're going to feed them all. And the disciples, <laughs> you know, we just think, why are they so, you know, brain dead? Look at this. And the disciples said to him, just a chapter ago, he fed over 5,000 men. And they say to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place? So my first thought is, I want to say, really? I mean, really? Weren't you just there when he fed 5,000 people? Uh, so before we start in on them too much and calling them empty brains and saying that they're unable to perceive obvious things, um, this is different for them. And let me let me kind of show you what's different. And again, I mean, obviously, we can just say we can get the bread if there's any bread. But this is why it's, I think, a little bit different for them and why they might ask such a, you know, question that makes us go, really? Um, 
here's what's going on. Remember, this is 4,000 men, probably up to 10,000 people, Gentiles. And so this is a huge crowd of Gentiles. Now, back when Jesus fed the 5,000 men, probably up to 12,000 people, that was for those people that were all there that were Jewish. That was um, anticipatory or in anticipation of the great messianic banquet that's going to happen in Revelation 19. And so because it was anticipatory of that and there were 12 baskets full left over and there are 12 tribes of Israel, we can all see all these connections of how this is something that all the Jews were kind of partaking of and it's pointing towards that great day where all those that are in Christ will be there. But in, from their perspective, when that happened, they thought, yeah, that makes sense. And they're all going to be Jews that day. So they think that this feeding of the 5,000 was kind of anticipation of that great messianic banquet, but that's in their minds only for Jews. Now here we see this where this is happening to 4,000, maybe 10,000 Gentiles. And so the idea that the, the um, great messianic banquet would also apply to Gentiles was just completely out of their minds. They would have never thought that that would have been the case. So we can give them a little bit of slack when they say we were going to get all the bread. Now, of course, we can just say, didn't you just see a minute ago when, you know, Andrew went and stole the guys, the little boy's lunch and we, we did this or Philip, whichever one it was. Um, not good with names. So uh, <laughs> but we see that that happened last time. So we know that that was something that they should have been able to answer. Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed all these people? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And I think that's a little bit like, uh, remember one chapter ago, how many loaves do we have? And they said, well, we have seven and a few small fish, so seven loaves and maybe, I guess, three fish or so. And directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. Now, here it is. This is, I think, one of the major points of the field trip right here to the Gentile lands. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now, we talked about this last time, where the disciples learned that they got to partake in the miracle. Jesus absolutely did the whole miracle when he fed the 5,000 and he was the one that got all the glory. But just like how gracious the father is when he does amazing things, he, if you will, passes the bread to us and lets us be his hands to pass it out and get to participate in this great thing that he's doing. Now, all we can say is, well, Jesus gets all the glory. We're just the hands passing out the bread. But, and that's the same thing that's going on here. Same, same thing we need to learn. That whenever we get to do mighty things going on, God's really the one that did that. And we're just the hands passing out the bread. But here's the great thing about the, about the field trip. The disciples, the Jewish disciples are serving the Gentiles, breaking down any vestiges of racism, breaking down any barriers that they have in their mind that this is only reserved for Israel. You're going to be the ones that are going to be the, the hands of mine to go out and to serve these pagan dog Gentiles. This is how Spurgeon, when he's talking about this, he says, Lord, use us. For if we have neither loaf nor fish, we have willing hands. This is the posture we're supposed to have. No matter who's around us, whether they're the highest or the lowest, whether they look um, of the same skin color or not, it doesn't matter what their socioeconomic status is. Our posture is just like this. Lord, we don't have fish or loaf, or maybe we do. But no matter what, I want to have willing hands to serve. I want to do exactly what these disciples did. I want to be used by you to bless the crowds, if you will. And so we see that. And when that happened, they, just, they gave them out to the crowds, verse 37, and all ate. So everyone there ate. And not only that, they didn't just eat to where they kind of got a little bit. When God is here and God is feeding, they don't just get enough to curb their hunger. They don't just get enough so that they won't faint on the walk back. But instead, they were satisfied. They were satisfied. And it says they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces. If you remember last time, they took up 12 baskets full because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And this, that was the Jewish you know, big meal, if you will. Because this is the Gentile, it's seven. And seven is signifying the perfect or completeness. And so this is, for us, the seven baskets, because this is a Gentile situation, showing us um, the fullness of God's provision here. That's why I use a seven. Just showing that God's provision is always full. But he always collects it all as well. He doesn't just throw it out and say, it's no good. He's frugal as well. He collects it all and it's going to be used later. Um, And then it says, those who ate were about 4,000 men besides women and children. But what I want us to see here... Um, 
and this is the case it was in, in the previous chapter, there's a beautiful gospel sequence that's going on here. And I just want us all to see it where it says, he took the seven loaves and the fish, he gave thanks, and then notice what he does. He breaks them and he gives them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them, they all ate and they were all satisfied. This broken this uh, breaking of the bread is signifying of his broken body for us. And then this giving is him giving himself or giving to us or extending to us salvation in his death on the cross. And then it says they ate. This is when we, whenever we eat, is whenever we come and we take and we taste and we see that the Lord is good. We repent of our sin. We ask for forgiveness and he gives us his righteousness. And this is when we taste that. And notice, whenever that happens, it always is the case that we are satisfied. This word satisfied um, reminds me of Matthew thirteen forty four. This is one of my favorite parables. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man covered, found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. This satisfaction, this, eye of being, this idea of being totally satisfied in the gospel is that whenever we find Christ, he is our joy. He is our treasure. We don't find our happiness in anything else. All of our happiness, all of our joy, all of our satisfaction is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Not Jesus plus, but Jesus alone. And so we see this beautiful gospel sequence where Jesus was broken for us. He gave us and then we take and we eat and we experience the forgiveness. And then that last part is where we say we are satisfied. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. But he's also our treasure. The one that we're willing to say this changes everything that I'm a follower and believer of him. I give him my entire life. That's salvation. It's not just Lord and Savior. He's also our treasure to whom we give our entire lives to. And so this is this beautiful gospel sequence that we see. And then it says, after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan, which is unknown. We have no idea where that is. But from these three big Gentile stories, I want us to grab a couple big uh, applications that I think are helpful for us today. What are some of the big idea applications that we can see from these three big Gentile stories? The first one is, is that we can never say ever that someone can't be saved. Anyone can be saved. Anyone. That's what we're seeing here. That's the whole point of Jesus saying, field trip, no one would have thought as we go to Tyre and Sidon that there would emerge from these two regions believers that are pagan dog Gentiles. But there they are. Anyone can be saved. So for us as, a, as um, individuals inside this church, you need to know no one is out of the grasp of salvation. Anyone can be saved. You need to be willing to go and proclaim the gospel to whoever they are. And as a church, we can say if anyone can be saved, just like Jesus took them off, then we need to be as a church willing to go to the nations, not just our, our, our neighborhoods and our cities. But as a church, every church is under um, the Great Commission where we take the gospel to the nations. We don't go to every nation. That's impossible. But we go to some nations and we know that we trust the Holy Spirit that all the churches are going to the nations. So that's the first thing that we can see. J.C. Ryle says it's not It is grace, not place, which makes people the believers. And so whenever we go to these places, it's not the fact that we're in these new places. It's when we get there, we extend to them by our words, this gospel, this great grace of God that he's come and died for us. So it's grace, not place, which makes believers. We can never, ever say that a person will never come to faith. If anything that we've seen from this, we know that's just simply not true. People are going to emerge as Christians from all nations, tongue, tribe, and ethnic groups. Now, if that idea is really hitting home with you, that anybody can be saved, then the second application is huge. We need to, just like this woman, come desperately to Jesus. If anybody can be saved, if you can be saved and I can be saved, then the only thing that we can... Invite people into, or perhaps you need to be invited into, is just come then. Come right now. Desperate for him. You can, you're never too sinful. One of the, one of the main things I hear from people is, I'm just too sinful. I've just done too many things. I, God can never forgive all these things. That's absolutely untrue. No one is too sinful. You can come, just like this woman, as a desperate dog, and then be forgiven by Jesus, and now be a forever friend of Jesus Christ by confessing and repenting of your sin and asking him to give you his righteousness. Jesus cares specifically for you right now. And he's inviting you because no one's out of the realm of salvation to come right now and come desperately. Further, 
the last thing I want you to see is whenever you say, yes, I'm going to come. Jesus meets you with compassion. Verse 32, I have compassion on them. When we come desperate for him, pleading with him to extend us mercy, he doesn't show us contempt. He extends to us compassion. This is how Jesus works. You can say, I can't come like that. I can't be vulnerable like that. I don't know if I I should do that. You should know that when you do that, you're always met with compassion, never with contempt. Just like in Luke 15, the, the prodigal son, whenever he comes and he starts walking, the father sees him from a long way off. And what does he do? He doesn't say, well, he can get here when he gets here. He goes off and sprints towards his son. And it says that he throws his arms around him and he kisses him and he puts on the best robe and he puts on his ring. He says, let's rejoice. My son or daughter has come home. You're always met with this compassion of Jesus, never with contempt. So he's saying to you, come now. Come meet this compassion of Jesus. You be desperate and you receive mercy and compassion. Now, if none of those things are you, I just want to throw in this last application for those of you who are so satisfied right now in the gospel. You have found yourself so in love with Christ. You can't get over the gospel and you are. Yes and amen. Jesus is my satisfaction, my joy and my treasure. The last application or challenge I have for you then is. Be like that man in Mark 7. I am going to be zealous to proclaim it. I'm not going to find myself half-hearted with this message that changes my eternity. I can't be half-hearted with that. I can't have some good day, some bad. Instead, I have to be the kind of man, I have to be the kind of woman that will proclaim zealously to others what Jesus has done in my life. I don't know how long I have. I don't know how many opportunities Jesus is going to give me. I mean, I'm, I'm just as guilty of this as you are. Yesterday, I took the trash to the dump, which is about a mile away. And some man came up to me. I don't know his name, but he's running for office or something. He wants me to sign his petition. Um, there's that guy. And there's always the other guy that works there. And every time I see this other guy, he cusses all the time. And yesterday, again, I was driving off and I just it just occurred to me out of nowhere. That was two opportunities right there that you could have proclaimed zealously the message of the kingdom. I don't know these guys. I mean, I don't know their names. Even if they told me, I wouldn't remember. But the point is that I should try. I really need to try to remember names. If I don't, I'm sorry. That's not right. But my point is this. We have opportunities all throughout our day, all throughout our life, where we don't even think of them as an opportunity. There were two right there that it just didn't even dawn on me until I'm driving away. What did I do? I didn't turn around. There's so many opportunities. And we should all have this exact same posture of this man in Mark 7. I am zealous now to proclaim this because my entire life has been changed. And when we do that, that's when we show Matthew 13, 44, that in our joy, we were so happy that we sold everything we have and we bought this field, that Jesus is our king and we can't get over it. So what I want to do now is turn over... Um, to Stephen, and we're going to go into a time of worship. Wherever the Holy Spirit's leading you right now, I just want you to be obedient to that. Maybe you need to sit and think through some of those application points and pray through them and say, yes, I need to change. I need to grow. I need to get better. Maybe you're just so satisfied in Christ and you just want to worship. Maybe you just want to be more bold with your proclamation of the gospel. Whatever it is, however the Holy Spirit's leading, just be obedient to that and let's stand and let's worship our King who has saved us, who has extended to us in our great desperation, great mercy and saved us. Let's pray together.